the Biden administration is taking a big step toward an electrified future. Here's Michael Regan, the administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I'm pleased to announce that EPA is proposing the strongest ever federal pollution technology standards for both cars and trucks. These new strongest ever emissions standards mean that two-thirds of all new vehicles sold by 2032 will need to be electric. So what impact could this have on people's health and the health of our planet? Joining us to discuss is Danny Robles, Climate Policy Director at the Illinois Environmental Council. Brian Urbaszewski, who's Director of Health Programs for the Respiratory Health Association. And Larissa Kohler, who's Director of Vehicle Electrification and Senior Attorney at the Environmental Defense Fund. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for having Good us. Good to be here. to see you all. Yeah, thank you for having us. Danny, what was your initial reaction when you heard about the new emission standards? I was uh, excited, to be honest with you. Um, I think a lot of the, the work that uh, environmentalists and climate advocates had been doing for uh, the last 20 years to raise awareness on carbon emissions uh, led to this point. Um, you know, during President Biden's uh, initial run for office, there was a lot of advocacy done to make sure that we were driving the point home that CO2 emissions is something that people in my generation, the generation below us, are concerned about. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the steps that we need to get there to uh, mitigate some of the damage um, is tackling uh, carbon emissions from from cars. So Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, your initial reaction to the regulations? Well, I was paying most attention to the truck uh, rules, and you know it's 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 definitely an improvement. This is this is something that we haven't seen at the federal level uh, yet, um, but it's still a little bit further behind uh, what California and a number of other states have done. That Illinois could actually join as well. Um, so it's 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 definitely you know uh, a start on a, a long step in the right a direction. Step in the right direction yeah. is the way I'd put it. Sounds like it. And Larissa, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Agree with my colleagues. I think it's important to recognize that this is a momentous step from the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, together, these standards represent the most ambitious effort by that federal agency to reduce emissions. And I think it's a recognition, as Danny said, of what we've been fighting for for a long time, that these emissions from transportation, which make up the single biggest portion of emissions across the country, are something that needs to be tackled. And these standards alongside state standards are a a great way to do that. Yeah. And we should point out that these are just proposed rules at this point. They still need final approval, and uh, there will be a period of, of public comment. But back to you, Larissa, I want you to sort of walk us through some of the specifics here. Uh, The EPA isn't requiring that automakers sell EVs, but that is the goal. Explain. That that is the goal. That's right. So these standards are uh, don't specify a specific technology, but the emission standards that are proposed in these in these uh, separate rules, there's both a light duty and a heavy duty standard are such that probably the most logical way to actually achieve those emission standards is through more zero emission vehicles, more electric vehicles. So the light duty standard, the proposed emission standards will probably result in about, as you said, two thirds of light duty vehicles being zero emissions by 2032. Mm -hmm. And on the heavy duty side, somewhere between 25 and almost 60% of of trucks and buses on the road will probably be zero emissions. Yeah, they said that by 2032, these rules will result in 67% of new vehicles sold. That's to right. be EVs. So, Brian, many of the headlines I've noticed from the announcement last week, they focused on, on what this will mean for consumer vehicles. Um, but there are also, as you mentioned, regulations for heavy-duty vehicles like the d- delivery trucks and, and buses. Talk about that. 
Sure. Well, it's funny because we're actually building them here in Illinois. I mean, Rivian uh, is building Amazon delivery vehicles um, in Bloomington Normal right now. Uh, yeah. And they've got a contract to build 100,000 of them. So that 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 ship is already sailing. Um, and those light duty vehicle, lighter duty commercial vehicles are uh, where US EPA's rule is actually pretty good. Uh, it's it's almost uh, on the same par with where California is. The, the problem with um, where, it, where it falls short is some of those larger vehicles. So when you get into things like school buses or a cement truck, or especially things like semi-trucks. Um, that's where uh, California is much further ahead mm-hmm. by, by 2032. And California's rules actually go all the way out to 2035. So they get to the point where like 40 to 75% of these vehicles are going to be electric mm-hmm. by 2035. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's why we want to get Illinois on that path. Another- Any thoughts as to why we didn't go in that direction in the first place? Well, this is something where, you know, Governor Pritzker is going to have to make a decision on where he wants to go with this. I mean, do what we have right now is uh, a lot of commercial traffic, a lot of warehousing, a lot of factories uh, that rely on the semi-trailer trucks. Um, we're the cr- freight crossroads of the country here. All the railroads come here. All, everything goes in every sure. different direction. Um, and so uh, a lot of the communities that live near those facilities are breathing a lot of the diesel soot and a lot of the other um, harmful components of diesel exhaust. And you know, if you are low income, you are much more likely to be breathing air pollution. If you are a minority, you're much more likely to be, be, be breathing more air pollution. So there's a disproportionate impact. Mm-hmm. And that's why we really need to move faster on that segment in particular, because we, we, we see people that are already suffering the health consequences and we need to get mm-hmm. there. We need deeper cuts and we need, need to get them faster. Yeah. To that end, Danny, talk more about why it's so significant that they're also raising the standards for the industrial vehicles. Yeah. So as Brian um, was Talking about that, you know, a lot of research has shown that uh, carbon emissions within uh, those heavy-duty and medium-duty vehicles have a disproportionate uh, amount of pollutants in the air. Um, While those vehicles only account for about 7% of the vehicles on the road, um, they represent about 67% uh, of nitrous oxides in the atmosphere, about 56% of particle matter in the atmosphere mm. and 36% of the greenhouse emissions in the atmosphere. So, That's you know, lot. someone who lives around the I-55 corridor, like, can breathe that. Anyone driving the I-55 corridor, like, roll down your windows right now, smell that in. That is the air that hundreds of thousands of family members or, yeah, families are, are, are living across the country. And um, it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we're really – Cautiously excited about the passenger vehicle stuff, but the heavy-duty vehicle yeah. uh, rules uh, leave us with a, a bit more to do here in Illinois. Yeah, more analysis here from the New York Times. Transportation accounts for more energy use in the U.S. than any other sector. If you look at 2021, for instance, transportation used more than twice as much energy as homes. Wow. So, uh, Larissa, the EPA it says that these new rules are going to eliminate 7.3 billion tons of CO2 emissions. Can you just help us wrap our minds around what that number means in in practical terms? In practical terms, that means taking so, I mean, hundreds of thousands of vehicles off the road, probably. Um, And as Danny said, uh, reducing those greenhouse gas emissions is going to help mitigate climate change, which is obviously going to be something that we're going to be dealing with over the next decades. And I think if you put more zero emission vehicles on the road, even though the heavy duty EPA standards are focused on greenhouse gas emissions, you're also going to be 
reducing as a result these harmful air air quality impacting emissions like nitrogen oxides and particulate matter that directly impact human health. So taking those vehicles off the road is just taking those emissions off the road, I should say, is just going to be hugely impactful for everyone's health and the climate. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're discussing the new proposed rules from the EPA that it hopes will result in electric vehicles making up the majority of new cars being sold by 2032. We are speaking with Danny Robles of the Illinois Environmental Council, Brian Urbaszewski with the Respiratory Health Association, and Larissa Kohler from the Environmental Defense Fund. Danny, I want you to also help us make sense of how these proposed regulations fit into emission standards around the country, because some states, they've got their own separate rules. I know we've talked a little bit about California, for instance, right? Definitely. Um, you know, I think these rules really help uh, put the rest of the country in a pathway to get to the cleaner air. Um, like Brian has been saying, California is definitely way ahead of the uh, the game in in these rules. Um, that's something that here in Illinois, we, we've been pushing our state legislature and governor to adopt those rules as well to get our state um, to meet some of those uh, other states. Um, there's a consortium of states across the East Coast and the West Coast that are already in, in that pathway to um, have um, a larger proportion of zero emission vehicles on the road. Um, and Governor Pritzker has made like uh, illusion that he wants a million vehicles mm. to be electric by the road by 2030. Um, and for us to get there, we really need, be, need to be meeting um, these rules. Um, and uh, specifically for US EPA, it's realizing that there's a lot of other states that aren't quite there on uh, the science. They yeah. aren't quite there with their state legislatures in seeing the urgency of the climate impact, of um, the rules that need to be made. And there's still a lot of consumers out there who, you know, don't want to let go of their trucks or SUVs, these cars that, you know, are producing more carbon emissions um, per mile than other vehicles. And uh, I think what we really need to continue doing is continue developing culture shift of um, we can't fight the solution or we can't fight climate change. We can't fight pollution with just cars and trucks. There's also a, a larger conversation to be had about uh, infrastructure in public transportation, in bike um, infrastructure, in walkability in our cities, mm-hmm. in accessibility to um, other options, uh, equitable modes of transportation, um, to be able to, uh, you know, tackle the, the, the crisis at, at the scale it needs to. Yeah. Anything to add, Brian? Where Where's Illinois at in terms of, you know, thinking across the country when it comes to improving air quality and just respiratory health in general? Well, when we're focusing just on the, the heavy-duty diesels, which are the, the big concern on local health, local air pollution exposure, um, you know, California has standards where uh, about 40% of big semi-trucks are going to have to be electric by about 2030 in Mm -hmm. California. The EPA standards, we're looking at somewhere around 15%. So it's literally about, you know, two-thirds bigger uh, and faster, uh, which is going to bring those health benefits here. Um, You know, it's it's also just kind of interesting, too, like where EPA is on both the car and the truck standards that, um, you know, we were talking beforehand, you know, President Biden's original target was like 50% by 2030 mm-hmm. to get electric vehicles on the road. And now they're up to like two thirds almost. Uh, and it's because the technology has just jumped so far ahead. 
And not only that, but I think the, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act have really juiced the industry. And there's billions and billions of dollars being invested in, in retooling and rebuilding new uh, vehicle factories, battery factories that you see in the news every day. Uh, so, so it's it, it's only accelerated over the last couple of years. So mm-hmm. we're we're optimistic that um, you know not only is the the vehicle manufacturing industry looking at this, but uh, folks that are going to be using these are also seeing the benefits of um, much less cost for for fueling or for you know the operation of a vehicle, mm-hmm. uh, much less cost for repairs and maintenance on the vehicles. And so there's going to be benefits to, to folks beyond um, beyond the health and beyond the climate benefits. Yeah, Larissa, the auto industry was already heading in the electric direction. So why apply these strict standards now? Uh, great question. So I think it, it's important to recognize that you need both a carrot and a stick. So you need those standards and you need the incentives to actually enable the achievement of those standards. So the standards are important because we need to uh, enact a strong market signal. So without those standards, um, you have, as you said, a lot of automakers uh, striving for clear goals, but you won't ensure that those goals actually happen without those standards. Um, and as Brian said, the incentives are important, mm-hmm. and we're recognizing the the cost ownership benefits of these vehicles, but you need those standards as a first step in order to actually uh, – get to those uh, benefits. So here's the pushback, Danny. Some people in the auto industry, they're alarmed by the EPA announcement. Uh, they're saying that these rules will speed up the EV transition too much and the infrastructure isn't there. What do you think about that argument? I think that's a false argument, um, to be honest with you. You know, in um, the 1920s, we went through an industrial revolution that really changed the way that uh, we as Americans live in society. And um, a lot of what we as climate activists have been saying is that we do have the technology and infrastructure available right now to make a renewable evolution to meet the demand that we need right now. And, you know, I understand their concern because there's a lot of people out there um, who rely heavily on the current market of um, internal engine combustion cars right now. Yeah. So... Um, my my dad's one of those guys too. He was a union automaker for mm-hmm. 20 years. Um, and funnily enough, uh, we went to the auto show this year to uh, see all the new cars. And there was a large line. There's a lot of EVs this year. A lot of EVs. Yeah. And I was super excited to get in line to test drive all of them. I told them like, hey, I'm going to be test driving my future car here. Mm-hmm. And when we tried to get them get my dad on he was just like nope that's not for me Mm -hmm. i'm not ready for it and i think there's a lot of motorheads out there a lot of people in the auto industry that realize that um this transition's scary it's it's a unions are concerned too that you know that it's going to lead to layoffs because it you need fewer workers to to construct evs definitely and and that's a concern that we're hearing uh across uh the country in all the uh industries that um are polluting CO2 emissions right now. Um, and that is a, a lot of the conversation that us as climate activists continue to develop out language around just transition, mm-hmm. um, making sure that workers who are impacted by this shift in renewable energy, we're providing them pathways to get involved in the renewable energy industry, um, which was part of, um, you know, Governor Pritzker's uh, Climate and Equitable Jobs Act that passed two years ago, making sure that we create those pathways of apprenticeship programs, training programs, um, and also um, budgetary 
adjustments for people who are impacted by yeah. that. I'm wondering about the um, the feasibility of these rules being implemented, Larissa, because um, there are already legal challenges that are, are being mounted against the EPA rules. And then 2024, we know, is a presidential election year. So could these regulations, you think, be reversed if maybe a Republican wins the White House? So obviously, I can't say it's not a risk. It's always a risk. Um, but I do think it's important to recognize that the EPA is well within its legal authority to enact these standards. They've been uh, uh, trying to tackle emissions from transportation for the last 50 years and have been doing it successfully. Um, the Alliance for Automotive Innovation has previously um, been supportive of EPA standards and they're responsible or oversee about 98 percent of, of automakers in the country. So I think that's impactful. Unfortunately, we might see some attorney generals around the country try and push back on these rules, which is unfortunate because that's actually those are the same states where we're seeing a lot of manufacturing innovation. So mm -hmm. it's um, sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face, so to speak. So, yes, it's possible, but I think EPA is on firm footing and I think we'll be able to successfully push back on any challenges. Any thoughts there, Brian? I would repeat everything that I just <laughs> said. Uh, Danny? Um, yeah. In agreement with Larissa, you know, I think uh, specifically right now, the direction that the country is going, talking to young people who are concerned about the environment, I think this is one of those uh, issues that is bringing a lot of young voters to be aware of how decision is being made mm -hmm. and how to keep uh, pressure and accountability on decision makers. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of states that have young people who are actively engaged in those conversations and Part of part of the goal for um, future climate activists is like making sure we get to the other states to influence a lot of the younger generation. Yeah. And we'll be talking more about Illinois after we take our, our break in a moment, Danny. But leave us with this in terms of climate policy. Just, you know, what could these new rules mean for our state if you had to sum it up? Yeah. Um, what this means, y'all, is there's going to be a lot of electrical vehicle um options in the next few years, um, which is probably going to drive the, the price of these electric vehicles when we have competition. We also have uh, a market share to uh, reduce those prices. So um, across Illinois, we can expect uh, infrastructure to continue developing, um, cities continuing to adopt uh, policies that um, will increase infrastructure. So it makes it easier for um, uh, private auto um owner to uh, charge at their own home. So we're going to see a lot of incredible evolution in our markets. We'll dig more into that. Just after the break, we've been talking with Danny Robles from the Illinois Environmental Council, Brian Urbaszewski from the Respiratory Health Association, and Larissa Kohler, who's Director of Vehicle Electrification and Senior Attorney at the Environmental Defense Fund. Thank you all. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. As we've been discussing, the Biden administration has proposed the toughest ever standards for vehicle tailpipe emissions. If finalized, the rules would mean two-thirds of vehicles sold by 2032 would need to be electric. Now, in order to make the transition to EVs, however, you have to have charging infrastructure to support them. So is Illinois on track to go all electric, or at least mostly electric? Still with us, Larissa Kohler, who's Director of Vehicle Electrification and Senior Attorney at the Environmental Defense Fund. And joining us now is Don Anderson. He's an Oak Park resident, EV owner, also a former employee at Schumacher Electric, which makes chargers for batteries and EVs. Great to have you on Reset, Don. Thank you for having me. Uh, Larissa, as of right now, 
There are roughly 1,300 public charging stations in this state. How many more do you think Illinois would need to be able to accommodate this huge increase in EVs over the next decade? You're shaking your head because you're you have no idea. <laughs> uh, I have I have some idea. So a lot more, a lot more, thousands more. Um, and it, we need public charging, and we also need uh, more charging at at residences and at multi-unit dwellings. So yes, to all of the above. And I think we also need more charging necessary to support this transition to zero emission trucks and buses, mm-hmm. which require different considerations. So would you say Illinois is on track to make that happen? We're Getting there. Um, I think there are some things in place that, I, that are, are helping. So um, under the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, Governor Pritzker set this goal of 1 million electric vehicles on the road by, by 2030. We don't have nearly that many vehicles on the road right now, but Illinois has a variety of incentives, both on the, the charging side and the, the vehicle side, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that aims to, to grow that market. And um, the Illinois Commerce Commission, which was responsible for regulating utilities in the state, just uh, approved two pretty big packages from Ameren and Commonwealth Edison, the two biggest utilities in the state, to try and, and support this transition to electric vehicles. So there are programs in place that are striving to grow the market, but we do have a ways to go. Don, let's get your, your firsthand account here. First of all, what has your experience been like keeping your car charged? Well, uh for a good portion of my EV ownership, and it's almost four years where I've owned nothing but an EV. Okay. Uh, I did charge in my own garage for uh, two of those years, and then in a share office share charger in uh, my apartment building for two of those years. And so much of the charging and putting energy into your vehicle uh, thought is completely different with an electric vehicle than it would be with your normal car where you would go to a gas station and fuel up. Uh, I always say that having uh, EV charging in your garage Mm -hmm. is like having a ferry that comes to your garage every day and fills your gas tank (laughs) up three quarters. Oh, that would be wonderful. And if, I mean, but use that as a visualization. If that was truly uh, something that happened, you would never have to fuel up in in the wild mm-hmm. as it was so uh it's it's been a great experience it's uh just having a car that's always charged yeah. ready to go and, makes and life you, easy you've been doing this four years what was it that motivated you to switch from from a gas vehicle i'm a car guy uh i used to own some sports cars uh i've literally up until this car never owned any car that wasn't a manual transmission car okay. i go to the indianapolis 500 every year i'm a car guy okay and when it came time to look for a car i am uh, my wife and i looked at you know the technology and it was the the battery electric vehicles were the new the now the exciting the interesting technology and we wanted to You'll be an early adopter and experience that. One thing that's uh, convenient about EVs, of course, is is charging them at home, as Don has has illustrated. What's more important, Larissa, getting more public charging in place or making sure that people can charge at home? Yes, and. So I think it's important that people will be able to charge at home. So installing uh, electric vehicle charging stations at single-family homes is – you will need – Rebates sometimes in order to allow people to pay for those charging stations, but it's relatively easy. I think the problem is people living in apartment buildings that may not have easy access to charging stations. So making sure that those people 
um, who are often low income and, and disadvantaged community members have access to charging stations will be important, which is why public charging stations need to be available for those individuals. Yeah, a lot of folks in Chicago, they live in multi-unit Absolutely. buildings. So talk more about what needs to happen to make having an electric vehicle make sense for those folks, um, you know, without immediate access to home charging. Uh, I think installing charging stations um, at destination centers, so making sure they have charging stations available at grocery stores, that they have highway charging, I think will be helpful. But also there's a bill currently um, in front of the legislature, which we hope will get passed, which would require all new build multi-unit dwellings and uh, single-family homes and and heavily renovated uh, multi-unit dwellings and single-family homes to be um, capable of having EV charging. So, oh, okay. so that, that would be a big push, uh, I think, that would help alleviate this problem. Although, of course, also having those incentives will be necessary to make sure that people can pay for, for sure. charging stations. Have you had to navigate that at all, Don? Um, charging in a, a multi-unit dwelling? I'm currently in a multi-unit dwelling. And, oh, you are? And uh, when we search for a new home, uh, having EV charging in the building was a requirement. And so there were literally buildings that we would have loved to live in, but because EV charging uh, was not available, it uh, it made us look at another building. And uh, um, from my other experience of having a charger installed in my, in my uh, home that I had a dedicated use to before yeah. I lived in the multi-unit building, I was shocked to see literally how small of capacity I really needed. I didn't need a 50-amp service for my day-to-day. A 20-amp service, 220 volts or 240 volts, which is like a window air conditioner, certainly less than a stove, accommodated all my use. Uh, It's actually Ah. surprising how little electricity you need to charge people because the average car sits stationary, unused for 80 or 90 percent of its lifetime. Hmm. That's that's I'm glad you pointed that out, because I think that's one of the the immediate questions I had was like, how much charging do I need Mm -hmm. to do now? I, uh, I picture myself constantly having to plug it in. Well, there's there is a a a statement in the EV ownership uh, uh, community called "Always Be Charging." Okay. So if uh, ABC, and so uh, if you own uh, a charger that you're dedicated to, you uh, just want to uh, plug it in and just charge it up to that eighty percent. And so every time you leave the house, it's there, and you just kind of get into that habit. Uh, Conversely, when you're uh, doing a long trip, like I've taken a, a, a back and forth to to Ann Arbor in a day trip. That was 500 miles. Yeah, or, how did that work out? Uh, uh, well, I will say that the state of Michigan is way ahead of the state of Illinois for its uh, high-speed charging, uh, its DC charging, not surprisingly because of how robustly the auto industry is integrated in the state of Michigan. And those long-distance drives, do you do those often, or do you typically just drive around town? I did one last weekend uh, the, the, up to Green Bay. The, the weekend, you know, the first time I did that previously was maybe in January. So uh, it's not something that I do all the time. Uh, but, but, you know, my trip to, to Ann Arbor was uh, 500 miles in a day, and there's a fast charger in Kalamazoo. There's a fast charger in Ann Arbor, another fast charger in Kalamazoo. And, mm. and so um, uh, it was just part that of the rhythm of the trip. And I will say that, uh, 
you know, the one in Kal- Kalamazoo has got a Culver's across the street. So I plug in and go get some frozen custard and come back <laughs> and then I'm ready to roll. Perfect. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, Illinois is preparing for the EV transition as more electric cars and delivery trucks and buses are expected to be on the road in the next decade. Our guests are Larissa Kohler, who's Director of Vehicle Electrification and Senior Attorney at the Environmental Defense Council, and EV owner Don Anderson is with us as well. So, Larissa, a recent Associated Press poll, it shows only 4 in 10 Americans are saying that they would make their next vehicle an EV. What do you think it is causing this hesitancy? And do you think that that could change quickly? So I do think it could change. I would say there are maybe two major, at least two major factors that are contributing to this sort of breakdown, or as you will, four in, you said four in 10 people want an EV. I think the first is education. So I think the information is just not there, or at least not readily available to the people who should be seeing it. Yeah. So. I think uh, having a more holistic set of educators that are telling people about the cost benefits of electric vehicles, um, uh, dispelling myths about range anxiety, Um, as Don said, you know, he's well able to do even longer trips, Um, educating educating about when to charge, things like that, um, I think will be hugely beneficial. The the second is, um, as I said, range anxiety is something that while it may not be as much of a challenge as people think, is still something that needs to be overcome. Mm-hmm. So putting more... Charges- I think I suffer from a little bit of that. That's, that's <laughs> fair. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'm from somewhere else. I do road trips a yeah. lot. And I think, oh, there's no way I can get to Toronto and back with an EV. But I think one... I'm one, sure there is. <laughs> yeah. And one, one thing to consider is that there's um, now two major federal programs in addition to... Illinois, I think, putting more and more charging stations in in place. The National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program is a $5 billion pot of money from the federal government that will install chargers along highways. So I think you'll see it's every 50 miles, you'll see a charging station. So you can be assured that you'll have some some place to charge. And then that's in addition to $2.5 billion available in discretionary grants that states can apply for and put more charging stations in communities and highways. That's wonderful. So to the person listening to us right now, Don, who is hesitant about getting an an EV, stepping into that market, what do you say? Well, I think that there's a couple of uh, things to keep in mind uh, when when you're considering an EV. Uh, And and one of them is that there's features of EVs that uh, not even counting the the range and the climate effects and the charging that are just superior to uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. I drove down the Ike on the way here. Most EVs have something called one-pedal driving mode that uh, uh, so you don't have to do that dance with gas brake, gas brake, gas mm-hmm. brake. When you're stuck in stop-and-go traffic, one-pedal driving mode has completely transformed my relationship with Chicago traffic. Mm. It's just, it makes driving easier. And, and so, you know, there's these, this whole set of things that EVs just do better than internal combustion engines. And, uh, uh, but as the range gets bigger uh, on the vehicles, as more and more people know people who own EVs, that's going to be a big change. You know, when, when you didn't know anybody who owned an EV, you go, well, this is, this is unusual. Right. This is new. It's out of reach. I have no idea what this is all about. Yeah, that's true. But then when now there's three EVs on your block, you start to go, you know, 
clearly owning an EV is not a crazy thing. So yeah. I don't have to I don't have to go to the car dealer and learn about this. I can ask my neighbor, and 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 then you get that real world feeling where, uh, uh, yeah, this is something. Yeah. And and so the things I've read is that it, there's going to be some point in the future, in the near future, where uh, EVs. Uh, uh, compared to internal combustion engine vehicles, are going to be on par in terms of uh, performance and price. Interesting, and that will be uh, that will be the momentum shift. That'll be the game changer when mm-hmm. someone uh, uh, goes in and and says, "Well, you know, I could buy this car, I could buy this car," and they kind of do the same thing. Uh, yeah. uh, let me go to the one that never makes me have to go to a gas station mm. in my life. To that end, Larissa, what, what are the next steps for electrification in Illinois? Um, I think actually getting those charging stations in the ground, um, uh, uh, making sure that we're funding, funding rebates for the vehicle and the charger so that people will have, uh, you know, can recognize, can, can sort of achieve that cost parity more quickly between electric vehicles um, and and uh, gasoline vehicles, mm-hmm. and will unlock these cost benefits in terms of fuels, operations, and maintenance um, that they will be able to take advantage of. On a practical level, Don, uh, what would be the biggest improvement that you would want to see Illinois make to to make sure that owning an EV is easier? I would encourage every city to install. Uh, something on the equivalent of a level three charger, the high-speed charger, in their commercial areas, particularly uh, uh, cities that are off of the interstates. And uh, we were talking uh, before the show a little bit about this famous uh, travel center in Pontiac, Illinois, Wally's. That's fantastic. It's the nicest travel center on earth. And they've installed EV charging. So if you drive from Chicago to Springfield with an EV, you're going to stop at Wally's and charge up and use their business. And so that's the model that makes sense for the, the high-speed charging. Mm-hmm. The the kind of level two charging, things like that, I think it's um, focus on areas where uh, cars are sitting for an extended period of time. Uh, I would uh, encourage employers that uh, uh, have employee parking lots mm-hmm. to put in EV chargers yeah. because, you know, that's a, you know, we're in a situation where it's harder and harder to attract employees. And so this could now be uh, a way to attract the best uh, 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 candidates to your company saying, hey, by the way, you can charge your EV when you when you work here. And a yeah. car sits for eight hours, nine hours at work. Getting charged. Uh, y- you can easily recharge what it took to get there and get home when it's sitting stationary. Pretty I think good point. It, it'll be a real um, challenge uh, in a city like Chicago where we have a lot of people who park on the street. Um, and and uh, those people are going to need places to charge. But uh, I, my car has a 260-mile range, and uh, um, the average person drives 40 miles a day. Yeah. So, so if someone who lives in an apartment has the ability to park their car somewhere over the weekend and get a charge up, they've got their cool. weekend covered or their week covered. Yeah. So, so it's just focusing Convenience. on yeah. focusing on uh, uh, where we want to congregate business 
for the high-speed charging and where cars or all vehicles are parked for extended period of time yeah. for, the, for the less speedy charging. We'll leave it there. That's Don Anderson, who's an EV owner and Oak Park resident. Also, Larissa Kohler, Director of Vehicle Electrification and Senior Attorney at the Environmental Defense Fund. We've been talking about the Biden administration's proposed emissions standards. And if finalized, they would mean two-thirds of vehicles sold by 2032 would need to be electric. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure.